0: practical tips, tools, and resources you can implement today to bust through your own internalized prisons of worry and doubt. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box.
1: Welcome to this episode of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, a podcast all about helping action takers and decision makers like you align their purpose, To their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. Hi, I'm Sarah from Sarah Box Coaching and Consulting, where we help executives lead strategically and achieve impact in the world, all while staying heart centered and true to their own values. I am a champion of possibilities, a former executive director and best selling author of The Changemaker Ripple Effect, a book about how one person's drive, purpose, and boldness can impact thousands. And I'm here to tell you that the life you want is possible with the right support, mindset, strategy, and most important, action. And today, you're going to meet a woman on the podcast who knows all about that. We are being joined today by (coughs) Denu Maru. Denu came with her family to the United States from India at the young age of 10 years old. Like many young immigrants... She was bullied by classmates, but she didn't let that stop her. Those experiences actually had an impact on her and made her respect and honor the journey that all immigrants face. Danu is now an experienced and award-winning immigration lawyer. She owns a law firm named Swagat USA LLC and represents immigrants from around the world who need assistance with U.S. immigration process. She is now committed to creating the type of law firm that supports clients in achieving their immigration goals, empowering immigrants to feel accepted and honored, and actually making a huge impact in the world and in her young daughter's life. Watching her clients succeed is one of Denny's passions and it drives her each and every day. So now in this episode you're going to hear how her journey as a 10-year-old immigrant and later and a Chicago lawyer taught her about overcoming adversity, what fueled her desire to become a lawyer and help others, and how today she protects the rights of individuals, families and businesses around the globe through her law firm. Now let's welcome our guest Danu. Hi, Danu. Hi, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's really nice to have you on the show. And um, it was fun chatting before we actually pushed record. I felt, um, I just felt connected to you pretty immediately, partly because you just have this great, welcoming presence. So I'm imagining that I'm walking into a law firm and you're who I get to talk to. I'm going to feel a lot more confident. So, um, but let's go back to. To um, a first question. Is there a non negotiable or something that you do every day that keeps you heading towards your big vision and your goals?
2: You know, one of the things that I truly, truly believe in is that you always have to reflect and you always have to look forward at your next step at your next goal. So what I love doing, and this is non-negotiable for me, is listening to um, podcasts like yours that are inspiring, inspiring authors, eBooks. I'm always reading, learning, um, following, you know, inspirational um, people. And so that has become a part of my routine. You know, when I'm working out, I'm on my headphones and I'm listening to something
1: inspiring. I do the same thing. And how do you think that affects you? Because I'm curious, like I know my experience from doing that, but what's your experience from doing that? Like physiologically, mentally, what what do you, are the benefits for you from that?
2: I just feel like a positive vibration that keeps me going and it, it keeps me focused and it helps me actually just come up with solutions. And that's sometimes, you know... It, it's sometimes like a small, small solution that's necessary to put together, whether it's a case or whether it's my next business move or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm listening to people and I'm like, Oh my God, that's it. That's the solution. You know? So I just come up with these ideas from this kind of, you know, time, um, to focus on sort of the big picture on things. Yeah. And I I also believe, yeah. And I also believe that, you know, As as a business person, um, um, I've learned over the time that your business can only grow as much as you can grow.
1: I am right there with you, and you know it. Sometimes, if you you have a problem, like you're thinking about a solution for one of your clients, and you're stuck in the problem, we can chew on that problem, and we all we get are the same solutions we had when we started. Right, mm-hmm. but you listen to someone else, and like you said, and all of a sudden you go, "That's the solution," or it just shifted yeah. how you were perceiving something. So, yep. yeah, that's so powerful, and it also helps, I think, um, combat some of the negative stuff that we all have to deal with. That's just part of day to day living. So, yeah, well, talk to about us about what it was like being a ten year old girl and coming here from India. I mean, that's a huge shift. What was that journey like for you?
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't, I mean, at the time, you know, the world, the internet wasn't as, um, connected as we have now. And it was just sort of beginning and in India, I don't think people were mostly on the internet yet. So, um, we didn't have the easy access to learning about a different culture, to learning about what to expect in things. And I just relied on what my parents told me and my parents relied on what, you know, my father's relatives in the U.S. told us. And so it was all filtered down information. And, you know, my grandmother had been to the U.S. and she had only ever lived with my uncle and aunt. So she only knew a little bit. So we were all kind of looking at, the United States from somebody else's lens um, and had no direct access to learning about what the culture is like. So my cousins, when they would come to visit us, they would bring candies. And my parents had always limited our sugar intake. So it was always like, candy's bad for you. Your teeth are going to rot. And so in my mind, I somehow had this vision of all of the Americans having rotten teeth. (laughs) It's like, Okay, that's. I just uh, (laughs) so they must eat a lot of candy, so they must have rotten teeth, and that that made sense to me as a child. So,
1: (laughs) well, okay, (laughs) that's pretty funny. (laughs) Did the stories that filtered down from your uncle and your grandmother and through your parents were they positive stories? Were you looking for the move with anticipation, or were you nervous? What do you recall?
2: I just, you know, it was, for me, the biggest idea, the the thing that kind of consumed in my mind was leaving my friends. And that was very hard for me to accept. And so I think what my parents, and I think they did intend this initially, because they weren't sure if we were going to be able to make it in the United States, right? So they said, well, let's, you know, go there for a year and try it out. And if we, you know, um, can't make it work, we'll come back, and so when they told us, and you know we would say no, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave my friends, they would say, Well, you know, tell them you're going to leave for a little while to be with your cousins and you you'll come back and you'll still see them and so I never said goodbye goodbye to any of my friends. I only said i'm going to be back <laughs> i'm going to be back
1: Did you ever get to go back as a young adult or yeah and see your friends? yeah, yeah. yeah but several years later. So, okay, so you moved from India. Where did you come to in the U.S.? Because it's a big continent, and there's all kinds of different states and places. Where did your parents, where did you land?
2: So we came in the fall of uh, 91, and uh, we landed in Connecticut, in um, sort of northern Connecticut. And um, um, I remember because, you know, the first snow of the year hadn't happened yet. And we had to write an essay in my fifth grade class um, on snow, and I had never seen snow. And so I remember kind of trying to imagine what it was like. And then, I, then you know, while I was imagining, I started thinking about some paintings of snow that I had seen. And they, they were kind of painted with a thicker paintbrush, I guess. So it looked like it was snowballs falling from the sky. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was thinking in my mind, like, you know, there's gonna be these huge chunks of snow that are going to fall on our head.
1: (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) So when it finally snowed, what did you think?
2: Well, I said it's nothing like that. It's soft.
1: (laughs) 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 There's a there's a lesson embedded in there somewhere, Danu. You know? (laughs) Like what we think is so scary, sometimes really isn't, you know? Yeah. And until we know something firsthand, we can imagine it being so much worse or catastrophic than it actually is. You know, yeah, we can scare absolutely. the pants off ourselves.
2: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, you know, I just, I wrote my essay about, you know, snowballs falling and trying to protect yourself from that hitting you and, and all of that. And my teacher just looked at it and laughed and she just couldn't help herself. <laughs> But that's so
1: sweet, you know? <laughs> I think it's sweet. I think, it, I just think how brave it is too, to be young and like coming into something that's so different. Now, when you came, did you speak English?
2: I did. I had learned, um, so I had gone to an English medium school in India. So I had come, spoken, I mean, I spoke English, but in the British way.
1: Which they would say is proper. Yeah. And the kids in Connecticut, probably thought you were weird.
2: So. And I used to stick my U's and color and everything, you know, and so, <laughs> so so, when I did that on spelling tests, you know, my teacher gave, gave me uh, that as correct. And some of the students complained about it because they were like, no, that's
1: wrong. Why did she get marks for that? <laughs> uh, well, they would come to learn later in life. But you, know, you said That you were really bullied as a child. Did Mm. that start when you first got to the states, or did that happen when you got older, or what? No, it it actually started
2: right away. It was kind of like your name is weird, Um, you know, and then people would start poking fun of my clothes. They started poking fun of my food, Um, you know, and and um, I would, you know, bring all different colors of chutneys and stuff in my school. (laughs) <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. I'm like, ew, what is that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, and then they would sometimes, you know, I had some kids who like used to hide my lunch. They couldn't figure me out. I mean, this is what I, now that I reflect, I think that's what happened. It's like, here's this girl, she's new, but she somehow still does well in school and she doesn't know how to connect with us, but she seems to still get, you know, um, into choir, she still seems to get good marks and she knows the answers it's like what's going on? it doesn't make sense
1: <laughs> you know so how did going through that um, shape you as you grew older? Yeah yeah and
2: so that was you know there was a period of time where I used to initially it was really sad because I came from you know having all my friends surrounded um, i I came from a place where everyone looked like me. I nobody like would pick me out in a crowd as being different, right? And and I moved to a place where everyone looked at me the minute I walked in and it's just like, you know, I knew that I was different and that was the first time that I had that experience of being different. And um so that was kind of awkward for me and I initially wanted, you know, for the first whole year I think we used to come home crying every day and we were like we just want to go back my brother and I. And um and, and I think, you know, my parents at one point might've even considered it, but then they said, you know, let's give it a little bit more time and see how things shift. And I'm glad they did because eventually what happened was that I learned how to talk to bullies. I learned how to connect with bullies at a heart level. And, uh, that was, that was a huge breakthrough for me.
1: It's very vulnerable when you know, regardless, right? It, maybe it's skin color or culture or your role in a room and you stick mm-hmm. out. It's a really different feeling. And so that's, that skill that you learned about how to connect with people is such a valuable skill. So yeah. I can see how that would be so powerful. But you also talked about your family's traditions and culture having a role in your success today. What cultural Mm -hmm. things really helped frame you and keep you solid?
2: I think being closely connected with family is always a source of strength because I never felt alone, alone. Like, even if I always, you know, even if there were periods where I really struggled, I always had a place where I felt like I belonged. And I always had people who knew the real me you know, who didn't judge me from like smaller interactions with me. And so having that source of like identity and support that never left me was really important in being able to make that leap from being afraid of bullies, from running away from, you know, uh, social interactions to going up to them and not fighting back, but actually connecting with them, you know? And it just helped me, kind of overcome that that feeling of difference. And I, it, it was really a beautiful thing because I came to the U.S. I realized everyone here is so different from w- what I had seen. And yet there was something about us that wasn't so different after all.
1: Right? Isn't that the truth? I just want to um, acknowledge how brave that was of you too. When you say you, you were able to go up to the bullies, but you didn't fight back, you connected differently. That Mm -hmm. takes, um, in my opinion, it takes a really strong sense of who you are, who at your core, which you just said your family and your traditions really help solidify that. But it's also Mm -hmm. brave to, because it's still vulnerable to do that. And you just showed up as you and were open, right? So that's so powerful. And I'm wondering um, from that, how did you grow and even want to become a lawyer? I mean, what was your path forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, I had watched, you know, how my, for for example, I think of my mom and I used to think of her even then as being like all-knowing, all-powerful. I think kids just think that their parents have all the powers, right? And um, And I remember being shocked that she was ever in the position where she was so vulnerable. I mean, when she moved here, she, she didn't have everything figured out. And I just real, I had that realization that my mom, who I thought was so powerful now, like she's being treated as if she's a nobody. And, you know, and sometimes because she couldn't enunciate something well, or because she spoke with a certain accent, people would treat her differently. And I just, I had that image of her completely shattered. And so you know, I I remember feeling like this need for empowerment. And I had read, and it's kind of interesting because I had read in a book somewhere that if you ever want to master anything, you have to learn the rules. And that's what made sense to me as, you know, in my mind, made law so powerful and so empowering because it was the rules of the land.
1: So, so, how old were you when you started that? Like, were you a young adult? Had you were you still in high school, or where were you in your journey?
2: I was in college, and I remember I had in my college I had um, majored in philosophy and child development. So there was always a tight side of me that loved, like you know, philosophical arguments were very interesting to me, and at the same time, the child development had that very human side, you know, understanding people, not just abstract, you know, conversations, but real human beings. And the law seemed to marry both of those aspects for me, because there is a piece of the law that's very abstract, but then the application of it is so
1: real. Do you like that preciseness? I I do. I do. (laughs) I can tell by, like, you just kind of light up with that. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, she likes the gray and the interpretation, but boy, howdy, does she like the preciseness of it. Um, Yeah. So now, so you were already in college. Where were you going to college? I was at um, Tufts University in Boston. Okay. But you, when you first came, you were in Connecticut, but then you didn't stay in the Northeast, right? No.
2: I, um, so my parents lived in Connecticut for, I think, six years. And then after six years, um, so my uncle, my aunt, my parents, uh, my cousins, all of us used to live together in the same home. And my uncle actually found a really good opportunity in Owensboro, Kentucky. And so he moved to Kentucky and we all moved with him. And so we all moved to Kentucky. I still have some family, uh, close family in Connecticut as well. And, um, and so, um, I think I probably wanted to go to college in Boston because I, I wanted that, you know,
1: rebound to the Northeast one more time. You know? <laughs> I was curious if that was the draw for you because, you know, you come and you anchored there in the beginning, you know, yeah. grew your roots there. So I was curious. So you went in initially to become a lawyer. It's not like you went in to, um. Do something else, or did you start down child development first? Like, did you think yeah. that would be your profession?
2: I, I didn't know um, which profession I would be involved in. I mean, i I think I just went with what majors I felt drawn to, and I really felt drawn to philosophy, and I really felt drawn to child development. And um, no one in my family um, initially was a lawyer, and then later on, one of my cousins became a lawyer, but. Um, initially, nobody in my family was a lawyer, so the the profession didn't really strike me right away. But when it struck me, it was just like, "Oh my God!" All of the lights went on in my mind, and it was just like, "This is perfect. This is the most empowering profession
0: I could choose." Tired of feeling stuck and ending with the same result? Want to know how Sarah can help you with one-on-one or organizational coaching? Then book your free discovery call at sarahbox.com forward slash contact. Now, back to the show. Well, you've actually said that,
1: that you find it to be one of the most empowering (laughs) professions and a great equalizer if you can access it. So what do you mean by it's one of the most empowering professions? To you personally or in Mm. general?
2: Um, I think in general, to me, it, it, it is. Um, but in general, I think it is because um, one of the beautiful things about the law in our country here is that, you know, the, the um, police have to follow it, the, the, you know, everybody, powerful, not powerful, everybody has to follow it. So that makes it a really good equalizer, a way that somebody who can access it can actually be heard and considered, regardless of their, um, you know, level in society, so to speak. And so, it's not perfect. And I know we always debate about the imperfections of the law, and and it's a great debate to have because it, it you know, the, the clearer and the more perfect we can make the law, the better it does its job of equalizing. But it is much, much better than it is in many many countries around the world. And so. Um, one of the things that I really like about this profession is that, you know, of course, access to justice is a huge issue. But once somebody finds a way to access it, there are so many safeguards built in uh, to our legal system that that you can, you can. I mean, I believe in it. Of course, you know, it, I, I represent people um, in the law, and I do believe in it. I think that you know there are problems that can be worked out, but the system itself is. Is hugely important. It takes people, um, initially, some of my clients, it takes them time to understand that the law will support them. Um, And once they understand it, they feel this empowerment that I'm talking about, you
1: know? When you say it takes them time to understand that the law will support them, in my mind, that means. If I'm trying to learn that and understand it, that means I have an advocate or someone who's helping me do that, which would be you, my attorney, I'm assuming, correct? Right. I'm not just saying, hey, go out and understand it and then come back to me when you're ready. You're actually holding my hand and walking me through and kind of demystifying it and stopping my freak out and showing me what is possible. Is yes. that correct? Okay. Oh, so- yeah. I think about that and your own passion for the work you do, and that led you to create your law firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now you kind of make sure that you're bringing that hope and vision to other people, not just here in the U.S., but in other countries as well. So I have a couple of questions around that because I can tell that your personal vision and values are so woven into how you approach your work you know, your philosophy, your ability to stand back and really think about it, but then really stay true to the law. Mm -hmm. How do Mm -hmm. you ensure that the people who you hire and that work with you can embrace and, you know, demonstrate that embrace your vision and your culture so that there's not a disconnect?
2: No, there absolutely has, um, you know, there has to be no disconnect. And so one of the things that when I hire somebody, I always look for the why. Why are you interested in this work? Um, Because I think that question alone tells me if somebody has a passion for it or not. You can't do this work well without passion. The kind of uh, work that we do involves working with people who are not always savvy, and sometimes they are savvy. I mean, I think it's also a mistake to think that immigrants in general as a group are not savvy, right? So um, some of Some of my clients are and some aren't. I mean, we deal with people from various parts of the world uh, with various different experiences with the legal system, various different impressions of what lawyers do, and we have to educate them into our way. And that sometimes takes a little bit of time because this isn't necessarily the way that they've been used to doing things. Um, And that kind of patience comes naturally for someone who has a level of passion but if they don't have a level of passion they burn out fast and so what i have found with my firm is that when i'm um hiring somebody um i need to know their why you know what is what is it that speaks to them about working at an immigration law firm
1: and even with that it's still intense work so i come to you i'm hired by you i have the passion I have what it takes to do the work, but it still is a taxing work, right? These oh, are yeah. real people's lives. They, they're counting on us as the firm. How do you help us as a law firm not burn out? How do you help us maintain that spark also? We celebrate our
2: clients' wins. Um, we love winning. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, as, as a team, one of the things that I love doing is, you know, um, and, you know, right now everyone's remote, so it's a little different, but uh, when we were together, we would go out and get, you know, chocolate or shakes, or even if it's something small, just to commemorate a win.
1: It's too easy to just kind of go on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's a tendency, right? Especially you have a big workload or you're doing something that's like, okay, that's done. That's great. Good job. What's next? You know, Mm -hmm. so, well, and things will change hopefully back where you can do your chocolates. And that sounds so fun. (laughs) Now, you're a mom, right? Yeah. So, how did you balance becoming a mother with your, because you're the, like, the chief cook and bottle washer at home and at your law firm. So, How did you balance that with a young child?
2: Um, Well, the first thing and the most important thing um, to me was that, you know, I I had to not separate my work and personal life. I couldn't, you know, in these neat little boxes like, okay, work is this and then this is personal life. I couldn't do that because uh, for me, the two were so integrated already. And so I said, well, you know what, I'm bringing work home. Why not bring home to work? And so what I ended up doing was creating, you know, a small area for for, uh, my child, um, you know, when she was young. And so I would have her kind of, have a little nursery there right next to my office. And sometimes I did interrupt client appointments to go and like when I was breastfeeding her to go breastfeed her. (laughs) And um, and so, you know, for, for me and also for my daughter, the two have been connected and sometimes she would come after, after, you know, she goes to preschool and sometimes she would come after preschool and come to my office. And sometimes she would sit in my paralegal's office and like, hand him the printouts from the printer and
1: so she's part of the business she's part of the
2: business and sometimes she you know plays pretend I've seen her play with her dolls and she would play pretend and she would be the lawyer and some doll would be the client
1: (laughs) okay now that's pretty novel I like that what does she think (laughs) about you being a lawyer does she understand the kind of work you do and how important it is
2: I don't think she understands fully. I think she understands that mom's in the office and she sees a lot of clients. I don't think she understands what that means.
1: (laughs) I'm curious. I remember going to the office with my dad on weekends because he would go in and do extra work and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't think at the time, I mean, at the time it was just time to hang out with him. And even though he wasn't paying attention to me, right, I could wander Mm -hmm. around and talk to other people and stuff. But what was interesting in t- reflecting with someone um, professionally this week, I realized the impact of those interactions, right? Because I always felt like I was visible. It was okay for me to be there. It wasn't terrible to be a kid in a grown-up world, you know? And, and yeah. I, wasn't, I was like fetching papers for people, too. So I felt important. You know, that was my yeah.
2: job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that's really
1: cool. So what are you trying to do? Or how do you help people with businesses? How does that relate to the law that you practice?
2: Sure. So there, in immigration law, there's multiple types of immigration law. For example, it's, there's asylum. This that is where someone who might be fleeing for, from violence in their home country comes um, to seek shelter in the U.S. And then there's, um, you know, there's marriage-based or family-based immigration, where someone from the from the family. Uh, sponsors the individual. And then there's the business immigration or the employment base where it's actually a place of work that sponsors somebody to come work for them. And um, so that could be, for example, you know, um, if there's a multinational company and they have an office in the United States, but they want to bring their German employee to work in their U S office, then they still have to go through the immigration process. Um, So that's really where the business immigration comes in, or if someone is, um, you know, is an international student graduating from a U.S. school, but they want to work in the U.S. in a in a company, and the company wants to hire them, you know, unlike a U.S. uh, born student, they can't just hire them without sponsorship. So if it's an international student that they want to hire, then they have to go through an immigration lawyer in most cases.
1: So I just think about the reach and impact you have in people's lives by doing that work. It, it really must be very satisfying to you as sure. a profession. Yeah. I think what I would like for you to do as we wrap this up, I'm just imagining there are young women or men, but really young women who are listening to you and thinking, I want to be like her. I want to go down that path or a, something you said resonated with them. What words of wisdom or advice might you offer to someone in that position who wants to make a difference in their own life or in the lives of others whether they're immigrants or not? What what kind of thoughts do you have for them?
2: Um well, I think that for me one of the ways that I was finally able to truly make the kind of impact and live my life's mission uh, was when I decided to open my own practice as opposed to working in a law practice in general, because even though I had all these lofty ideas of what the law meant, um, when I saw you know how it was actually implemented by certain law firms that I was working in, it didn't actually meet my own expectations and so for me what that what that path you know w- turned uh, the way that path turned was um, I needed to. I needed to design it. I needed to create it in the way that I envisioned it. Um, you know, I wanted to serve clients in a certain capacity in a certain way, and I had to create it. And so, I think people have to understand that you know, there's no, there's no limits. You just have to be willing to take that leap initially and it's just a mind game. It's just in your head. Once you take that first step, the second step will light up for you, but it won't light up for you initially. You just need to take that first step. And it's like, you know, every step you take, the next step kind of lights up.
1: Okay. There is no better way to end the show than on that piece of advice. So with that, I just have to say a heartfelt thank you for spending time with us today. And I wish you all the best in your work, and I'm excited for your young daughter to have a mom role model like you who's showing her how to be true to herself and make a difference in the world. Thank you so much.